I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg is our host each and every week. And she's the subject of a documentary. She is the uh, subject prior to that uh, as, uh, as a uh, subject of a long radio series, and that was during and, and after that, even before she became the host of her own show, and she's the author of 16 books, and she just got back from a conference, and uh, I guess hopefully uh, got to see some other talented authors and, and get some uh, you know insight into some books that maybe we wouldn't hear about unless you go to such a conference. But Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg, once again, is our host each and every week. Uh, Doc, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, how was your conference? Uh, yes, it was um, interesting. <laughs> uh, and I'll get into that and tell you about it. Um, I decided to do a conference uh, which is unrelated to politics because political rhetoric is raging so high right now and spouting out of all the outlets uh, and because of, naturally as everybody can can uh, not get away from uh, we're only a few days uh, before the, the uh, finish line on November 8th of the uh, midterm elections national and local uh, and so today, instead of adding to the racket, uh, I think I'll, I'll try to entertain you with something entirely different. Uh, we appreciate so that. I, I said we appreciate that. I, I think uh, uh, there's so much noise and traffic happening with, the, uh, with regards to the election that everyone's tuning things out. Right. Yes. It's, uh, it's really obsessive, and so uh, I want to relax people a little bit. <laughs> uh, with this conference um, this past weekend, which was Women Writing the West, and it was held in Oklahoma City, so I flew up there from San, uh, San Antonio. Uh, and the organization began in the mid-1990s uh, with a group of women writers Oh, four or five of them, not too many, who got together and held a meeting, and they were concerned about the state of writing about the West. Uh, they were all active writers who were being snubbed by agents and editors and publishers who were publishing only works by men, by good old boys who were writing about good old boys, and they had a monopoly on Western fiction. Yeah. And Western writing in general, fiction or uh, or factual, whatever it happened to be, there was no room in those days for feeble females who were wow. considered to be too delicate, too ignorant, or just plain dumb to write anything interesting or credible about the West. Mm. So this small group founded a club, and they wrote a mission statement, and I'm going to read it because it gives you a good idea of what their ideals were and still are. Yeah. Women Writing the West is an organization intending, and here I, I quote, to address, educate, coordinate, and support writing that acknowledges and documents the recognition of women and girls and their contribution to the history, culture, and growth of the American West to preserve the historical importance through writing and other literary skills available 
through publishing and the use of seminars, meetings, newsletters, conventions, competitions, and other communication tools, unquote. Hmm. So by the time I – sorry, did I interrupt you? No, not Frank? at all. I was just uh, soaking it all in. It's uh, uh, Right. Yeah, we've come a long yeah. way. There was just no female uh, hero or heroine, whatever you want to say, uh, uh, in Western fiction at the time. Um, so anyway, by the time I became aware of the existence of this club, uh, it was around 2003, and the conference had grown enormously since the uh, mid-1990s. Uh, and by now, it attracts some, some, somewhere around 2,000, 200 members to the annual conference. Huh. Uh, and the conference um, always features many attractions. Uh, and I'm going to read a brief description of uh, what it does. Uh, Women Writing the West is a supportive and welcoming community of writers and other writing professionals who share a passion for the stories of the women's West and will happily answer questions, lend their expertise, and will sympathize, motivate, and celebrate you on your writing journey. <laughs> An annual conference features respected writers, agents, publishers, and other book professionals plus camaraderie and just plain fun. Past locations include Albuquerque, Denver, Seattle, San Antonio, and Tucson. And that's the end of the description. Mm. Uh, they do have an, an annual literary, uh, well, they started with one annual literary award. They have several now. Uh, and the, the first and most important one is the Willa Literary Award which is named for Willa Cather, who is the famed female writer of novels about the Great Plains. And a couple of titles, which may be familiar to you, is Death Comes for the Archbishop yeah. and My Antonia. The award is open to anyone, whether a member or not. And the one strict requirement is that the novel must have a female protagonist which I have found limiting in my own creative writing because I often have a man, um, despite the fact that I'm a woman. I write from the point of view of a man very often. And, and then there are other awards, uh, which include the Downing Journalism Award and the Laura Short Fiction Award. Uh, both of those are fairly new. And this very year, just uh, a few days ago, a new award for high school writers, which I think is a very good idea. Great idea. Get them started early. Yeah, yeah. And uh, not only that, it encourages young people uh, to go ahead and uh, and write. Yeah. Because most of them are, are going to go into uh, some kind of business that uh, that will will stop them from uh, from writing because they won't have time or interest if they go into business in some way. Okay, so uh, if any of the listeners out there, any of you people hearing this uh, podcast uh, is interested in joining Women Writing the West, all you have to do is Google the name Women Writing the West and it will pop up immediately with all the information you need. It's a very uh, well set up. Uh, website. And sessions this time for this conference included 
uh, interesting topics. They, all the sessions always, I mean, all the uh, conferences always do. And a couple, uh, two or three of them, one of them was nature writing, and the uh, head of that, uh, I became a good friend of hers, she, a new friend. And then another one, which was fascinating, um, it was called Voices from the Grave, What Cemeteries Reveal About Our Past. And uh, two uh, two women researched all the graveyards, um, not all of them, but all the historical graveyards, at least, in California and in Texas. And I personally know the, the person, uh, Cindy Massey, who, who went all over Texas, which is an enormous undertaking, and looked at all the graves and wrote the book, wrote a book about her research, and of course she was one of the two uh, in this seminar. The other woman was Gail. Um, wait a minute, Gail Evans, Gail Hart. No, I can't remember her last name right now, yeah. although I know her well. And never mind. Um, so the other one was Gail, and uh, California is also a huge state, so she had uh, lots of work on her hands too. And then there was one on, which was simply a session called Great Start, which was how to begin a novel. And another one was marketing and publicity, which, of course, is very necessary. If you're a writer, you need to know how to do that. And uh, the last one I'll mention is, is fact as tantalizing as fiction? And very often it's even more so. So... Uh, anyway, I entered a book for the Willa Award, which is Before the Alamo, a novel of historical fiction about the uh, the period when Texas was still a state in Mexico, uh, which won no recognition <laughs> this time. And I interviewed with a purchasing agent to see if she would be interested in my memoir, and she wasn't. <laughs> so, so I scored nothing uh, as far as those two purposes went. But the main reason I went to the conference this time was to see friends of many years standing whom I hadn't seen since before COVID-19, and I think many of us went for that very reason. The conferences for, two, two, uh, for uh, 2020 and 2021 had been held by Zoom, and I didn't even go to them because I hate Zoom so much. Um, but anyway, this time was a joyous reunion for many of us oldsters. And Oklahoma was a good place also to hold a conference because it's centrally located. And it's, um, it's a very cosmopolitan city, surprisingly cosmopolitan, of I'd say around 700,000 people. Uh, it's larger than I thought it was and has gorgeous, wonderful museums, cowboy museum, a, a Native American museum, and an art museum uh, with a, a big exhibition of Chihuly glass, uh, which was absolutely fabulous, a whole floor devoted to to his creations, and a column of glass uh, glass objects that was three stories high. Um, to greet you as you uh, went into his exhibit. Uh, and uh, the conference was located in the middle of the city at the Sheraton on North Broadway Street, which was turned out to be a very fine hotel 
with all amenities and very, very good food. So we, when we had a banquet, we really had a banquet. It was good. So many, um, many of the old-timers did not come, which I was sorry about, and some of them, I think, were taken by COVID. But enough were there, so we had a fine time, and, uh, and we also made new friends. And uh, among the ones that I met and got to know, really, for the first time, were the Sandells, a couple, Cindy and Sandy, <laughs> the last name Sandell. So um, those are kind of tongue twisters. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> good, you got Cindy, the alliteration in there, though. That sounds pretty good. Both of them I'm sorry, good. what? I said they sound pretty good. You got alliteration. Uh, and yeah, of yeah, of course. Nice. Uh, Cindy's name is not really Cindy, but she took it when... Uh, Sandy, his last name was Sandell, began being called Sandy. Yeah. Uh, so that's how that came about. Uh, Cindy is a founding member, and so she was wined and dined and celebrated at the meeting. And then uh, Mary Kurtz was the one uh, who did the nature uh, session. Uh, she's a poet. And uh, she, um, and then the one who sat next to me when we had our book signing hour was Bonnie Hobbs, and I'm going to read from her book. Um, she was also a runner-up for the Willa and didn't make it. <laughs> her book title is So Wild the Wind. And then I'm going to read from the winner of the, the Willa, which is called Striking Range. Uh, and I'll get to those readings in a minute uh, while I open, first of all, Bonnie Hobbs's book and get to page one. So here I go. This is chapter one, off the Texas Gulf Coast in 1867. Alida Garrison's linen skirt, seawater sodden, tried to drag her deeper. She fought to think with clarity to stay afloat. Rain pelted her, wind howled, but roaring thunder and the greater part of sizzling lightning had passed over and away. Toward the eastern horizon, bright flashes lit a gray-green sky. She struggled for a better grip on the splintered door and stared at the eerie light. Something brushed her legs. She kicked it away, her heart pounding as she fought to inch herself further onto this pitiful raft. She had only strength enough to haul her chest and belly up, leaving her legs dangling, skirts ballooning about them. Anything peering from the murky depths would see white legs wriggling like worms on a hook. Would a creature be curious? Would it be hungry? Fear chilled her, as this tepid sea never could. When something grazed her thigh, she screamed and thrashed water to foam then took a breath and willed herself into a semblance of composure, squinting into the water. Better to know the horror than imagine worse. The storm had churned the sea into a murky soup, dusky at its depths. A ghostly form drifted just below the surface. Alida squinted, leaning closer. Ropes trailed from her bit of wood and tangled around, around what? Sarah, her sister Sarah. Wisps of cloud scattered in a sudden gust of wind. 
a setting sun thrust spindly fingers through them and back into the sea it had left behind. Sarah's white face shimmered up through the water and the faint light. Raven black hair, so like Alida's own, swirled around it. Blue eyes, wide and empty, stared from just below the surface, and Sarah's arm undulated as if beckoning her sister to follow. Alida tugged at a loop of rope, frantic to draw her sister to the surface, but when Sarah's body broke free, it glided down and away. Alida plunged after her, but Sarah sank lower and lower, one arm still reaching, eyes staring, drifting on a deeper tide. Alida kicked back to the surface and burst from it, gasping and retching. The door, where was it? She flailed, desperate. One arm struck something hard, caught hold. Barrels and boxes bobbed around her. Fallen sails slapped the surface and sank. Rigging tangled around her legs, and things she feared to know nudged her. As she kicked free, waves rose around her like hills, like mountains. At the top of each swell, she scanned the water. Seth! James! she screamed. Where was Seth? Her Seth! Her baby! And Sarah's husband, James, and Sarah's infant. Horror set her trembling. Where had she last seen them? Where were they when the ship smashed into the rocks? It had groaned and then shrieked as it split apart. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm going on. If I can find... I'm skipping. Here we go. Uh, Alida remembered the baby. This is Sarah's baby. Squalling. Her, her uh, Seth is about five. Um, Alida remembered the baby squalling, maybe too young to know what to fear, but shrieking just the same at the chaos she sensed all around. Her own Seth, little Seth, had stared wide-eyed at Alida, trusting her to save him. Now the water rose and fell in a silence broken only by her ragged breathing in the wildly whistling wind. Had everyone left her alone to suffer in this pitiless sea? Her sister's accusations were justified then. If this journey was Alida's folly, their deaths were Alida's fault. Soon, pounding waves delivered her to shore. Their force tore her from her bit of wood and flung her onto wet sand, grinding her skin against it, washing her up onto a beach set gleaming by a rising full moon. Spent, she fought to raise her head, fought to stay alive for Seth. Sand filled her mouth, clogged her ears, nose, and eyes. She spat it out and tried to push up on her arms and roll over, but couldn't fight free of the sucking sand. She flopped back on her belly, coughing. Strong hands grasped her shoulders and heaved her over. Wind pebbled her skin. She shivered and spat. My boy, she whispered, save him. And that's where chapter one ends. So that's an example of somebody who did not make <laughs> top um, the top tier. Well, I'd like to I'd like to hear top tier if that's if that's something that fell short. I mean, that's wonderful. Uh, disturbing, yes, it was very but good, but poetic and very evocative. You're right there in the sea with her. Yeah. You know, 
Well, the next one is by, that one was by Bonnie Hobbs. And this one is by our winner, who is Margaret Mitsushima, or Mitsushima. I'm not, probably the latter pronunciation. Her husband is obviously Japanese, although I did not meet him. Yeah. I met her, of course. And here we go. This is called Striking Range, and it is a Timber Creek canine mystery, so it's one of a series. And um, chapter one begins Friday, early October. Finally, today Deputy Mattie Cobb could interrogate the man who had once tried to kill her. She parked her canine unit outside the prison gates as she scanned cars that had already arrived. She leaned forward, fingers hovering over the key in the ignition, her stomach churning with a mixture of dread, anticipation, and, yeah, some sort of deep satisfaction that she was about to meet face-to-face with the man who'd once tried to burn her alive. Wow. Yeah. She was looking for Jim Hawk a cold case detective from San Diego who was investigating the shooting death of Douglas Ray, uh, Mattie's biological father. Her dad had been killed almost 30 years ago when she was was two, and the case had never been solved. The circumstances around his death were complicated, most of the facts still hidden, and Mattie was determined to to uncover the truth. Her German shepherd partner, Robo, heaved himself up from his cushion where he'd been sleeping and dropped his shoulders into a long stretch. His pink tongue curled and his sharp teeth glistened as he yawned until his throat squeaked. Did you have a good nap? He plopped his rump down into a sit while she opened the gate at the front of his cage to stroke the soft black fur between his ears. So far, intriguing. Hang on. I have skipped too far here, so I'm paging. I'm breaking I'm breaking the magic by fumbling around. Sorry okay. about that. But I was going to say, at first glance or first listen to, um, the, uh, the, the quality between uh, Bonnie's and, uh, and, and this particular one is... Uh, uh, is pretty pretty close. I mean, you know, again, it's small sample size, but um, you know the the fact that the uh, the lady uh, that you read from earlier, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's yeah, a big I'd, difference. Yeah, I tend to agree, but uh, we can't quarrel with the judges. Uh, it, it, this one builds to an incredible uh, uh, tense conclusion. I mean, early, this woman early. knows how to write. Uh, a thriller, which this definitely is, of course, murder mystery thriller, uh, and it took took the judge's breath away. So, uh, so plain old poetic prose didn't <laughs> didn't make it this time. Okay, I'm back. Uh, so uh, we have been introduced to Mattie and her dog, Robo, and now she's waiting for this detective, uh, Jim Hawk, to come uh, to. Uh, He's supposed to come so she can meet him. Um, 
So a plain black sedan glided past and parked up front close to the gate in a spot reserved for prison personnel. Matty spotted the white shock of hair that made Detective Jim Hawk key to recognize, easy, I'm sorry, to recognize. After the driver's side door of the sedan opened, he unfolded his tall, lean frame and exited the vehicle. He wore a navy suit with a light blue shirt and tie. His eyes went directly to Maddie's explorer, telling her he had seen her. He lifted his hand in greeting. So the two of them then get um, into the prison, and they meet uh, Warden Donahue, who is uh, guiding them on their way to the uh, to John Cobb's uh, cell. When all of a sudden an alarm goes off, they happen to be in an observation room at that moment, and the room's uh, door automatically locks, so they're all three of them caught in there for the moment. And uh, so now i continue. Uh, Warden Donahue's face had hardened into a frown. We've got some serious shit going on that involves you. By, the ni- by this time, she actually knows, the warden knows what's going on. What happened, Hawk asked. We've we've had an incident in John Cobb's pod. He's dead. Hawk cursed under his breath. Maddie's heart plummeted. Her hopes, goals, and everything she'd planned to accomplish today dissolved into thin air. What happened to him? Donahue looked grim. When the guards went to get him, he was found dead in his cell. Donahue handed them, so they get to the cell, and so we, I continue at that point. Donahue handed them the protective gear she'd been carrying. <clears throat> Eager to go inside, Maddie slipped on the cap and booties. The guard appeared to be taking notes, and she uh, figured he was in charge of the, of the, of the scene, crime scene record. She... Um, Let's see. After after Hawk moved deeper into the room, Maddie had a full view of the corpse. Cobb's death had not been easy. His mouth gaped open, and his features were set in a mask of pain. His face was gas was a ghastly shade of gray, with a bluish tint around his mouth and lips. She felt no sympathy whatsoever for the man. All she felt was a need to determine how he'd died. A chill seeped through the air as she gazed upon the face of the man who had once shot an animal tranquilizing dart into her back, abducted her, and tormented her as he tried to elicit information that she didn't even know. He'd aged, his hair whiter, his face more lined. He'd changed more than the five months since she'd last seen him warranted, and she hoped prison life had been hard on him. A pinkish discoloration at the edge of one of Cobb's nostrils caught her eye. She leaned closer for a better look. What do you see? Donahue asked from the hallway outside the cell. Uh, Foam, foam cone in the nostrils, Maddie said, answering, but making eye contact with, with Hawk, probably from pulmonary edema resulting from respiratory failure. Maddie scanned the room, noticing books on a small shelf 
built into the wall over the desk. Curious as to what Cobb had been reading, she moved closer to look at the book, book titles, one on U.S. history and one on hiking trails in Colorado. The latter caught her attention. Why had a book about hiking trails in Colorado been of interest to Cobb? She rose on tiptoe to scan the top uh, top of the book and could see where the pages had been dog-eared. What trails had Cobb marked? Mattie looked at Russo. Russo's the guard. I could see in uh, could I see inside this book? It looks like Cobb earmarked some of these pages, and I'd like to see which ones. Let me handle the book. Let me handle the book. Pulling on latex gloves, Russo crossed the room and pointed. This one? Yes. Mattie moved close. Right there where the first page is dog-eared. He opened the book and held it up for both Mattie and, and Hawk to see. The chapter heading appeared in bold letters. Trails in Timber Creek County. That's Mattie's, uh, Mattie's precinct. Mattie's anxiety started to rise. She reached into her pocket to withdraw her cell phone to take a picture. Next page. Russo turned the page carefully. Mattie fo focused on what she saw rather than the cold coldness that was starting to gather at her chest. Redstone Ridge. The title made her skin crawl. Redstone Ridge was the beautiful spot high in the wilderness area where John Cobb had killed her brother, Willie, and then tried to kill her. Cobb had drawn a star at the top of the page and then placed an X at spots on the trail diagram, one near the base, one about midway up where the trail divided, and one at the, t at, at the top near the bottom of the ridge. And there was another X drawn in a spot on the backside of the ridge, far away from the trail and out in the forest. An eerie feeling crept over Mattie. Though she hadn't returned to this spot since May, just thinking of it drove a cold chill into her solar plexus. There was a cave there where she'd been held captive, and the surrounding trees would be charred. Cobb had built a fire, a fire pit, intending for burning her alive, only to have the wind carry sparks away to ignite a forest fire that had provided cover for her escape. She shut down her mind to turn off the flood of memories, but she had trouble shutting down her body's reaction. She had to suck in a breath to loosen the tightening in her chest. What's wrong? Hawk asked, evidently sensing her distress. Staring at the page, Maddie shook her head. I'll tell you later. Tightening her fingers to keep them from trembling, she reopened her cell phone and positioned it to take a picture. She planned to hike to the places that John Cobb had marked, including that cave of horror on the backside of the ridge. Why would he mark these spots? What was their significance? She didn't know the answers yet, but she did know one thing for certain. She was going to find out. And that's the end of my reading. Wow. She does know how to build up and leave you uh, kind of cliffhanging there. You know, it's uh, uh, she's very skilled, you know, and uh, I, I, I can understand why she won. Yeah. Yeah. It just builds from there. And also the sympathies 
sympathy for the uh, for Robo, who is almost the hero of the story. Yeah. <laughs> the two of them, Maddie and Robo, are, are an equally important t- uh, member. Uh, e- each is an uh, equally important member of the team uh, that solves this whole thing. Um, but there's plenty of action and plenty of other dogs in between. So uh, it's got a lot of human interest and kids and so on in it. Um, she's in love with a veterinarian who is a widower uh, with, uh, I think, two children. Um, yeah, two children. And uh, a teenage girl and a younger boy. And, uh, of course, they are uh, especially involved with uh, keeping the police dogs um, uh, all in good shape, particularly Robo. So, you know, I mean, it has all kinds of attractions, this book, um, as well as being a very tense thriller throughout. Uh, well done, and uh, so a winner. You know, I'm, I'm always interested in, in, in process, and, um, you know, I've mentioned uh, probably a couple times um, uh, Ans- Anselm when uh, we, you were reading Anselm. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Rod Serling, uh, you know, the, the uh, anthology series, The Twilight Zone. And, mm-hmm. and I, could, uh, I could see that. The, I've had Rod Serling's daughter on my show, and I asked her uh, what I had always heard that her father wrote, her, her father wrote with a tape recorder. And, you know, an old-fashioned, you know, dictaphone almost, you know, that type of thing. And uh, he never went pen to paper. Obviously, you and these two ladies are in the computer age. And, uh, you know, you I assume that the three of you sit at a computer and, and you kind of peck out, um, you know, type out and, and peck out these stories as you're, as you're thinking. But I've always right. loved the, the writing method that, uh, that Rod Serling had. I guess maybe because I'm verbal, I'm very verbal, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, to me that's that's very easy. Would you ever consider writing a book off of uh, off of some of the uh, some of the the shows that we did here? Because I mean, you could simply transcribe uh, many of our our well, let's say ten of them, and, and you'd have a book. You know, you'd basically have a book. Um, you know, you uh, you have them transcribed. And by the way, for, for writers, I, assuming some writers are, are listening to this, there's a great resource called Rev.com. And it's it's so inexpensive. It's unbelievable. Like you could take this recording that we're using right now, that we're, we're creating right now, and give it to Rev.com and use the the least expensive version of it. And it and it spits out very quickly the the dialogue that's going on. So it would say, for example, Florence, and then it would have all of your dialogue there, and then it would say mm-hmm. Frank, and it would have my questions or my dialogue or my uh, input. Right, right. And mm-hmm. uh, if uh, if you just and and I'm speaking more to uh, you know some people that might be um, uh, fascinated by by this process that you are uh, you're, you're talking about or the the uh, the convention and the contest that was there, but. I, you know, you could you could simply, you know, pull out, uh, you know, my input, right, and just keep your dialogue on these different, even the politicals, uh, you know, Dr. Florence Byam Weinberg on on politics, and you have, mm-hmm. you know, you have many uh, Beto 
and and Greg Abbott story is there, and then you have Trump, and you have Biden, and you have uh, whatever. And and to me, uh, it it was gripping. I mean, many of many of uh, our conversations are, and really, what you would take out is is the ums and the ahs and whatever doesn't fit in in regular dialogue. And then the next thing that you you would go about is uh, is changing the words that were not um, it, that that just that don't read well, but they sound okay. You know what I mean? They yeah, sound good. Right. And, but anyway, uh, would you ever consider writing a book like that? Yes, uh, you, that's a very good idea. <laughs> you got many books. Uh, you know, as it, soon as I finish my memoir, I may turn to do something like that because uh, material is all there, as you say. It just needs to be typed out. Uh, and and you say this website. Uh, Rev.com. It's called Rev.com, and it is so inexpensive. It's unbelievable. They have two they, – uh, maybe they have more, but they have uh, two versions. One is like a more thorough version, uh, and then one is very cheap. I, I mean, it's almost I, – I, I don't even know what it is. It's like uh, – uh, is it – I don't know if it's 10 cents a minute or so. It, it's, it's something ridiculously cheap. And uh -huh. it is uh, by far the quickest and easiest way to get your words on paper. And, right. and the thing is, you already have them there. And again, it's, I'm glad I caught your attention. I'm, I'm basically speaking to some other people that, that are listening now and, and folks I know that are listening uh, to everything we do here that, uh, that are writers. And I had a conversation with a, uh, with a young man uh, who, who's been, you know, listening to us and, um, uh, and and you know I urged you know go to you know go to rev.com but it's really it, it just as an experiment you take one of one of the shows and just send it over there and just watch it come back I can't believe yeah. how quickly and how inexpensively they do it it's it's unbelievable but things are becoming easier and easier to do and it's becoming yes. easier to be creative Yes that sounds wonderful and it is web.com No it's rev uh like rev a car you know uh, R E V like review is short for review. R is in Robert, E is in. Oh, Eddie, I v. see. Yeah. Rev. Rev. Yeah, com. yeah. Now that makes sense. That makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. and and it changes. To me, it changes the whole process. Your style may be a little different because it might be free flowing and uh, a little different. But I think it'd be a creative challenge for an author, yes. especially yes. an author with sixteen books, with her memoir coming out. Um, you know, to follow up with. Things I, I I think it's a whole, you know, and as long as you're not married to the idea of of being consistent to your past, um, I, you know, to me I think it's a a creative challenge or um, a, a right. you know difference difference in in style. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do editing all the time too. Right. Uh, editing for other people, and uh, I, I probably told you along the way sometime that I had just edited a Bulgarian doctor's book on the um, evolution of the human brain, which I found a fascinating uh, history. Uh, and uh, I had to know all of the medical terms he was using, and the, he was talking about genes that came into being that are present in the human brain and in no other, and so forth. And uh, uh, I had to... Uh, 
very often correct his English because his Bulgarian is coming out very frequently right. <laughs> and distorting his English syntax. So I had to rewrite some of it, in essence, um, not not put in any of the uh, meaning, but just change the, the wording so that it was good uh, English and would be easy for people to read and understand. And uh, I had to chase down spelling of uh, uh, of some of the uh, of the words, so I had to know enough Latin and Greek to be able to do that, and so on and so forth. So I'm sure uh, that the task of adapting my own stuff would be simple by comparison to that. Yeah. <laughs> so I do have a lot of training in that field too. Yeah, I just yeah, it's great. Um, you know, I, I love this. You know, I love that kind of um, that kind of thought and all the different ideas that people have um, yeah. used over the years to get their work out. And you know, whether it's musical, whether it's literary, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it's you know, to me, uh, the, the method and the process is uh, is fascinating. Right, and, and by the way, in case the uh, reader is interested in. Uh, in this medical book on the evolution of the human brain, the man's name is Yanko, Y-A-N-K-O, Yankov. You just uh, repeat the first name and add V. V is in Victor on the end of it. Wow. And it's, uh, it is coming out. I think it may already be listed on Amazon. I haven't had time to look it up yet, but I think it may be. So you could, offer, you could uh, order an advanced copy. And he's so, a Bulgarian. Just a little publicity for this man whose yeah. work I, I enjoyed working on myself and learning from. Wonderful. What a wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful um, a way to meet interesting people, too, is, is to edit for them and to, uh, uh, you know, whether it's co-writing or editing or, uh, you know, some folks get into ghostwriting. But, uh, you, know, the, you know, the writing process uh, to me has probably never been uh, friendlier towards a writer with all the tools that are out there. I mean, they're, they're right. even cheat tools where um, where there there are bots that will write it for you. I don't recommend that, of course. That's that's cheating. You know, that's taking steroids or that's doing something wrong. Um, but there is AI. Um, you know, and some people, you know, that that don't write well, that um, that are looking to you know improve their their image, whether it's on social media or. Uh, or just press releases or whatever can go to these AR, AI bytes, uh, AI meaning mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, and yes. these, these bots, and uh, and they go there and they they put in a, a story and and it basically corrects everything and it rewrites it for you. It's uh, it's amazing. It's it's becoming very easy to cheat. Yes, yeah, that's the problem for teachers. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, when I was uh, still. In that game, um, I could recognize the shift in uh, in uh, efficiency in writing efficiency from one paragraph to the next when somebody was plagiarizing. And uh, in in the latter time, I, I retired in 1999, so uh, computers and the internet had only existed for a fairly short time. But the internet already had um, uh, had a um, Google could already already find a phrase, a, a, a certain series of words. You could just type in the series of words, and it would go to the article where those appeared. Yeah. 
so I could easily find the, uh, the place that had been plagiarized. And I think it's, of becoming, course, it's becoming harder to plagiarize now because of that. And, yeah. Uh, but mm -hmm. it is, it's becoming also easier to, to write or have somebody write something for you. Yes. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. But then uh, if you're... If you're having AI correct your English, uh, then it's going to be much harder to spot. Uh, oh, here's a shift in style and yeah. efficiency uh, because it's all going to be uniform. So uh, plagiarists can get away um, because of that, get away with it. Yeah, interesting. Well, very yeah. interesting. Uh, well, listen, uh, great subject. <laughs> you always come up with something <laughs> good, and, and we went in a, a different direction uh, than maybe you thought we'd go in, but uh, to me, it's uh, a fascinating uh, conversation, and it starts with a conference to, um, uh, you know, a, a plane to Oklahoma City, and um, yes, right. not bad at all. Right, and the, t the uh, two other museums, one was the Cowboy Museum, which is really fabulous. Of course, Oklahoma, I think Oklahoma City was the hometown of Will Rogers. I don't know how many people even remember Will Rogers. Yeah, he never met a man he didn't like. Is, is that Will That's Rogers? right, yes. <laughs> uh, he was a wonderful wit yeah. and um, observer of all things, including politics. Uh, and I think he's the one that coined the phrase, um, I, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I, he also said when uh, when Silent uh, Cal is uh, that that was uh, Calvin Coolidge, right? Who hardly uh, hardly spoke a word. Um, I, I think he uh, uh, he said when uh, when he was announced that uh, they found him dead, he said, "How could they tell?" Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it was him, but there was a uh, there was a story about uh, about. Uh, 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 Calvin Coolidge, or maybe it was Will Rogers, who said, um, "You know, uh, Mr. President, I, I bet, uh, I bet my friend uh, who says you hardly, you hardly talk and you hardly say a word, I, I bet, uh, uh, I, I bet my friend that I, I could get, get you to say at least three words." And Calvin Coolidge said, "You lose." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. And so everybody was glued to the radio, and and I grew up. Uh, I remember Wendell Wilkie using bad language as he was uh, blasting uh, uh, Roosevelt. Yeah, and how angry I was uh, at his breach of etiquette. I thought that was uh, first of all. I I loved. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, yeah. uh, as a sort of father figure, I think. Um, I was very, very young then. I was probably eight, uh, six, eight, somewhere in there. Uh, and uh, I knew enough to recognize exactly what uh, Wilkie was trying to do. Uh, and it is so similar to what's being done now. Yeah. The, the use of crude language and and uh, the racial slurs and all the rest of it. Uh, although Wilkie wasn't uh, guilty of racial slurs, but uh, but others were. They were claiming that Roosevelt was a Jew and therefore wow. uh, to be to to be aided. Oh my God! Wow! Yep. Times have changed. Yep. Thank God, times have changed. 
Well, well, Doc. Any any final words? Any final thoughts on well, on writing uh, and, or the writing process? Yes. Well, uh, I'm very grateful to that small group of women who got together uh, and created Women Writing the West because it really has revolutionized uh, Western fiction, broadened it, and uh, made it much more inviting and humane, and also much more artistic in many in many cases. And so um, I recommend people look into uh, Women Writing the West, but I also uh, inc uh, uh, encourage anybody. Uh, by the way, men can belong to Women Writing the West if they want to, so long as they're writing about a female protagonist. Uh, so, um, so I give them a plug for, uh, for having broadened the field of Western writing and having made it much more humane and enlightening. Ah, wonderful. Uh, wonderful, and congratulations to the winner. And we heard uh, you know, a little bit of a, uh, an excerpt there, and I, th I, I think enough to let us know that uh, that's a, a tremendous talent. And, and the other woman who didn't even place um, you know, in the top ten, congratulations to her on a talent, wonderful talent. Um, yes, yeah, she writes poetically and very beautifully, very... Uh, very effectively, she makes she she builds a picture that sucks you right in. No doubt about it. Well, Doc, thank you very much. Have a have a good weekend. Usually, we're speaking on on a Monday. This time, we're speaking on on a Thursday. So enjoy your Friday, Saturday, right. and Sunday. I'm sure you got some sleep to catch up on uh, with your traveling. You might be a little uh, a little not. You wouldn't be jet lagged, but you would be a little tired maybe from the running around. Yeah, mainly mainly the uh, the latter. Um, right. Because I I uh, did run around in the city too. So uh, uh, yeah. So, so anyway, I'm rested up, <laughs> and we'll see you uh, again Monday then. Yes, and to all of you, thank you for tuning in. We know you have a lot of options. Frank McKay here. Much more importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg is the author of sixteen books, uh, the subject of a documentary, and of course the host. Of, uh, of, of many, a podcast slash radio show, and you could binge listen to everything that we've done here or, or cherry pick some and, uh, and, and get our last two books, uh, The Choice and Before the Alamo. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show.